Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. So hey, welcome back to another episode of HashiCast. I am your host, uh, Rob Barnes, aka DevOps Rob. Thank you very much for joining. Today, I have a special guest in the building. You know, all my guests are special, but this one is particularly special. Reigning all the way from East London, the one, the only, DevOps Adil, you know, aka Adil Ahmad. Let's give our guest a warm welcome with some applause and make some noise. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Uh, so, you know, uh, technology, um, we're here to talk about uh, compliance and, and governance and uh, how we can implement these things with our security systems. But the most important part of the stack is the human. So I'll start off by saying um, welcome and how are you? Hello, Rob. Uh, thanks, mate. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, um, yeah, this is uh, where East meets uh, South, right? East London and South London uh, coming together. Uh, yeah, mate, uh, I'm doing well, thanks, mate. And uh, yeah, super excited uh, to have this chat. Awesome. So you are um, kind of new to HashiCorp, right? Um, I think you joined a little while after me. Um, so can you just tell the people a little bit about what it is you do, what your role is within the organization? Sure. Uh, yeah. So I've just joined uh, seven months ago and I've joined um, in the implementation services lead uh, for EMEA. Uh, so that falls under our global support and services uh, organization. And um, essentially, uh, the goal of implementation services is how we can accelerate the adoption and growth of our products with our enterprise customers and uh, um, essentially how we can help them. So it's, it, it's not... Uh, professional services, so to speak. Rather, it's um, how very quickly we can get them onboarded onto our products and also how we can really accelerate that maturity in the usage of our products. Awesome. I have like three or four questions already that have just popped up just, just from that brief explanation there. But I think before we get into that, I just want to kind of build a picture about um, kind of who you are and, and, and your, your background. So before you joined HashiCorp, uh, what, what kind of work were you doing and what, what kind of experience had you gained that enabled you to be successful in this role? Sure. Um, so my, I, my, I suppose uh, if I start kind of way back 20 years, <coughs> uh, um, I started my kind of IT career as a traditional network engineer um, actually, a kind of a, a, a cabling background, uh, more so in a service provider environment, and uh, um, where the network engineer is super focused on you know, BGP and ISIS type of thing. Um, and then around about 2014, uh, I, I moved uh, to uh, more of an enterprise environment, and uh, there I found uh, or I discovered rather kind of network automation. Uh, which piqued my interest and kind of one thing led to another where I, I got really deep into it. From that, I discovered kind of like CRCD pipelines and the whole kind of DevOps movement that was taking place. And that seeking that, I suppose, really uh, was the driver to have my kind of career transition. And I started moving away from networking and more towards the, the platform. Um, and as with, as with DevOps, the, the, uh, um, the prevalence of cloud 
started coming to play and then obviously being in that role meant going into the cloud. So I I moved when I moved away from networking services, I, I joined a, a fintech uh, startup um, where I was uh, coming in as a kind of cloud network engineering role. And um, my experience around network automation and Ansible lent itself quite well to then looking at the cloud. Given it was a startup, I, I think I had a lot more exposure than just kind of cloud networking and overall cloud. Um, but I got to work really closely with the security there. Um, the startup was quite small, actually, it's, you know, around uh, 100 people uh, in the startup itself. But that then it really gave me this opportunity to then move on to um, my last role, which is working for a, a tier one investment bank. And I've been there, I was there for like three years. And uh, um, where they were, uh, they started this cloud migration program, uh, more of multi-cloud, um, starting with Google Cloud as the as the initial cloud journey. And I came in right at the early of that, uh, early in the beginning of that program. And uh, um, given you know it's a tier one investment bank, uh, you know the, most of the the IT technology people are uh, very much from the on-prem background, and I was one of the few who have kind of come from the outside with uh, with you know. Uh, Whatever the uh, DevOps experience I've, I've uh, kind of gained uh, and, and around AWS uh, uh, and uh, Azure in that fintech role, and um, I think it was it was more the discovery I had in the fintech role was where I had actually a lot more exposure to application architecture. Although it was simple because obviously it's been small and stuff, but that application architecture um, really allowed me to see beyond the networking. So that it was, it was truly slight silo breaking, so to speak, uh, and helped me realize that actually even the networking designs that we had were pretty much kind of some of the stuff that we were doing were redundant, given that the applications were actually carrying out some of these functions. For example, you know, active active, where application was kind of handling that, uh, and we were then trying to do active passive in the networking without any visibility of the application, uh, and I, and realized that actually. We were carrying a lot of weight and burden, which was unnecessary. And that thought process, obviously, it, it, I suppose the, the the need to learn more and identify more and realize that actually this is kind of, even on the whole networking industry-wide, I felt that this is a, a gap, or especially with those side of companies. So when I came into this investment bank, that was my opportunity um, to really help bridge that gap between applications and, uh, and infrastructure and, and the networking team. Um, so that was, you know, up until my last role. And in the last role, that three-year journey, again, having been there right early in the program, it meant that I was very involved uh, in influence of what good looks like, uh, what, you know, Google Cloud, and obviously having liaison with uh, the people at Google Cloud. Uh, but essentially interfacing with security, networking, um, and so to speak, more or less, uh, at which point we saw, or I understood, uh, uh, working with security especially, where uh, generally these uh, um, you know, risks and compliance that we kind of taken for granted on-prem, on uh, and we were trying to apply this in, in the cloud, um, it, it did feel like it was unorthodox, and maybe this is what it is, is that given the experience of people on-prem, on um, and my exposure to AWS and Google Cloud thus far at that point, I, I understood very quickly, very early that, and, and, and this was at that point, it was obviously still talking from a networking point of view, that the networking in the cloud is not the same as networking on-prem. 
and I realized that based on those same principles, it would same apply to your IaaS, you know, your infrastructure as a service, and most of the other stuff. Where actually in the cloud, it's more of a facade, and they represent. It was just a representation of what we really on prem. Having said that, how they were actually uh, in in essence, there was just a, a programmable object, uh, um, and when you realize that you realize that the controls that need to be applied w- was different. And I think, coming to your point about the, um, the whole reason of this topic is that it was uh, from that point of realisation where the journey of um, people education and process education, uh, well, all the people education and the need to change process really started. And it was a three-year journey. And we made a lot of traction, a lot of progress, but I wouldn't say it was the end. So that's really kind of my background. And now I'd like to, as so we're coming into HashiCorp, I think what I've done is far from complete in, my, in, in, in the tier one investment bank. But having send, seen the progress, I'd love to be able to kind of replicate that and enable that for other enterprises and customers. Absolutely. Uh, you, you've touched on several, several interesting things. Um, so I think a point that I'm going to want to make just off the back of something you said is, for me, the biggest part of migrating from on-prem to the cloud is migrating your mindset right there is completely different approaches that you have to take with certain things when you when you think about on-prem networking for example you have very solid and very visible and understood network perimeters right and you can trust everything within those perimeters and you know you don't trust anything outside those perimeters but then when you move to the cloud you have this this thing we call the shared responsibility model and basically your perimeters are uh, they're a bit more vague now you don't really know where the perimeters lay and there are some things that you're responsible for and there are some things that your cloud partner is responsible for and on that basis uh you now need to think a little bit differently about security right so um you know to the listeners out there uh, adil and i we we have regular one-to-ones and the one-to-ones end up being conversations just like the one we're having today and it's these are things that we've uh, you know learned throughout our, our journeys as as engineers as architects out there and, and we just feel like having these conversations in a more public kind of facing kind of environment is beneficial to people who might be embarking on these types of journeys right so kind of spinning off that uh, I want to talk a little bit about day one and day two right so these are terms that are kind of thrown around quite a lot when we talk about adoption, um, especially uh, uh, Adil and I, we're, we're big, uh, big fans of HashiCorp Vault. Uh, we tend to implement it everywhere we go. Uh, and you have sort of the day one side of your adoption and day two. So from your perspective, Adil, um, what is day one and what is day two? What are the key differences and how do you know uh, which is, I think, is an important part of adoptions. How do you know when you've hit the point where you're at day two and you need to maybe be a bit more mature in your decision-making? That's, that's a really good question, actually, Rob. Um, interesting one, because I think everyone's journey is different, um, but it's uh, understanding, and I think the key point from my learnings uh, uh, in, 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 a, in a past role um, where I've been, we've seen, I've seen day one, uh, and I've seen kind of uh, beginning of day two. Uh, but that happened organically, uh, and I thought it wasn't 
there wasn't a kind of a decision that was made or agreement that was made from the beginning uh, as to okay when do we consider they want to be uh, to be finished having said that now with that experience i'd love to be able to then say look hey this is what we realized to be you know the end of day one kind of thing day two and so sharing my experience and i think what i consider day one uh, and i suppose going forward what's important is to understand Really, day one, it's about establishing that cloud operating model. Uh, it's, it's important. It's super important. It, the moment you start trying to apply your controls uh, and uh, processes that were designed for on-prem, that was designed to be slow, that was designed to actually have human intervention, and you try to apply that in the cloud where you think, oh, it's the same process, but we'll just automate it. What you essentially do is exacerbating that broken uh kind of non-fluid process uh, uh, and and with the automation uh, and that just uh, just doesn't scale um so we and uh, let me give you an example right where we spent so in that three-year journey i was telling you about right that first year actually we spent just fighting with each other to understand actually well, what should happen, especially with kind of networking and, and because obviously we're talking about the uh, the foundation and, and 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 that platform and building out the the um, the, the uh, direct connect or the networking into the cloud, and um, obviously security having uh, a, an influence. Uh, and given my experience in, in, in the, to the fintech, I understood uh, and realized how networking is different. So when I try to explain and fighting. It was difficult because when I tried to explain to her, for example, one of the things that InfoSec were insisting on is that actually, uh, and especially with Google Cloud, right? They say that we need to have uh, multiple different subnets, you know, smaller smaller subnets, smaller RAS radius. You know, we can't have this kind of a single broadcast, a single LAN. Uh, and when I tried to explain, to her, hey, there is no broadcast in the cloud. Understand this, you know, when you start dictating these. Uh, um, model that doesn't fit the cloud, especially at a foundational level, it becomes very difficult to migrate away from that when you do realize it doesn't fit. And I was trying to explain to him, and an example I'm giving you here is that, for example, Google Cloud, networking isn't networking in Google Cloud. For example, a slash 24 subnet that you would have provisioned, say, Google Cloud, in reality, it's not a slash 24 subnet. If you were to go log into a VM and uh, and did a uh, an IP config, you'll see the IP address as a slash thirty two. Essentially, it, it's in its own network and it doesn't because it doesn't have a broadcast domain. And I was trying to prove, and I, I did, and I did prove to them. I was trying to show them, but hey, if if you had no firewall rules, uh, and you know, there's something Google has this kind of centralized firewall rule. If you had no firewall rules, uh, so you had to kind of automatically deny. Traditionally on prem. That only applies to one subnet to another within a subnet, and a firewall can't influence a allow or a deny because they're in a broadcast land and they can talk to each other. In the Google Cloud, if you were to take away any allow firewall rules, two VMs which appear to be in the same subnet cannot talk to each other, and the reason why is because they're not on the same subnet. And and once I, I got I got that through to them, you know, I, I they understood. I then try to say to them, okay, now that we agree that actually every VM is in its own isolated broadcast domain and we have control and which VM can talk to another, in essence, it, is it can we agree that it is safe to put a prod VM and a dev VM in what we call in the notion of Google Cloud's same subnet 
and we can guarantee that they cannot talk to each other. And that was difficult to digest. But that, and this is, the, this is the key piece, right? And so it comes back to that whole cloud operating model. And the cloud operating model is only based on, it would be, in my experience, it's leveraged by understanding intimately what the cloud is here to, what the cloud is to offer. Uh, it, it may at face value feel like, actually, you know what, it's just VMware virtualized or it's just the same uh, kind of on-prem process, but virtualized, right? The, if we start thinking like that, I mean, it, for an everyday consumer, it may be okay. But when you're, when you're going at enterprise level, it's not okay because at that point you will say, oh, it's just like this. Therefore, we'll just apply the same processes and the same change requests and the same perimeter, so to speak, right? In essence, actually, there is no perimeter in the cloud, uh, which is what Google with their Beyond Corp and this whole zero trust that we talk about, where it's not micro perimeter, it's zero perimeter. You know, when I was asking the question to uh, the, uh, the respective security architect, like, you know, why do we need multiple subnets? The answer was zero trust. I'm like, <laughs> zero trust means no subnet, right? Because when you have multiple subnets, that means you've trusted that small subnet, right? But zero trust means, actually, I don't trust any of the subnet. It's as if your application is now out on the internet on the DMZ, right? And this is, so day one, essentially, to answer your question, to summarize that, I feel day one is, is establishing that cloud operating model. And that's not going to happen through uh, just workshops alone. Workshops is just the beginning, right? It's then when you're building out that platform uh, and building through uh, experiment experimentation, through discovery, uh, is establishing uh, um, the facts, essentially. Establishing the facts and thereafter say, hey, okay, you're right. Or you know what? We just realized that that's true. Therefore, based on our findings, really, uh, the, uh, the the our incumbent process, if anything, will slow down, the, and we need to rethink our processes and yet achieve compliance. And once we realise that, I, I think I, I, you've built yourself a solid foundation, and that's pretty much your day one. So I, I think uh, um, one of the interesting points there you talked about is having to prove to um, the security architects uh, about the kind of isolation of a VM in GCP in this example, right? And I think it, it, it actually boils to a wider point about um, experience and skill sets. So essentially, one of the biggest challenges I had as a consultant was a lot of the time I was speaking to analysts uh, who are responsible for making decisions. So if we take security, for example, a lot of these um, analysts or architects what they're doing is their job is to identify risks and look to mitigate them, right? However, the mitigations require an engineering mindset and a lot of these architects are not engineers. So that, that for me was a an obstacle, uh, quite a big obstacle to kind of uh, try to overcome because essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to educate them you're trying to sell your ideas to them and you're trying to get them to understand just how far their controls are going to go, uh, which is in a lot of cases, not very far, to be honest with you. And what you end up doing is introducing uh, unnecessary complexity, right? So I guess um, that, that's kind of one of the things I want to talk about uh, in terms of day one, right? Um, how do you go about tackling that type of issue where where you're trying to speak to non-engineers 
to explain engineering concepts um and how do you kind of sell these ideas to them like i know you mentioned uh, things like workshops um and building out the infrastructure and discovery phase and so on and so forth but you know what what are some of the other things that you did to try and um bring everyone onto the same page to understand well actually these are the risks and this is how we're going to mitigate them and some of the things that you perceive to be risks actually they are not risks just because of the way that certain cloud components operate right how how do you go about doing that Hundred percent, I hundred percent agree with you, right? And I think you're hundred percent right in the sense that the uh, the point of contention here is uh, that um, governance or infosec are dictating those mitigations, are dictating controls, uh, and especially when they're not in a position to do so, right? And these controls are, which which then tells you, right, is that these controls essentially have been kind of traditionally dictated and they continue to dictate that. And I think the point of contention, and this is something where we've finally, obviously, and this is not something that happened over days, right? It happened over months or even actually maybe, you know, over, over 12 months, over a year, where we had to come to that mindset essentially, eventually where uh, with uh, governance and, 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 and influence is to understand that, look, you tell us about you uh, um, identify the risks and uh, ask us the engineering team to come up with the controls and this is the essence right it's i think most of the conflicts or most of the contention that we have were around okay um, as you as again as you mentioned these perceived risks right i mean that's and i'll come on to that perceived risk in, in a bit but you know prior to that you know let's just say they're real risks even then, right, I I felt when they started kind of mandating, well, these are the controls I want you to start adding. You know, you, I need you to start, for example, I need you to start putting host-based files. I need you to, you to stop these put TCP ports and, and X, Y, Z, right? Is that at that point, well, how, if I could achieve that without having to go to this low level, um, you know, that would have addressed concern. But because you're stipulating in writing, these are the, these are the controls and traditionally you know whether it's network engineering or, or engineering you know the, the it obviously it's a two-way street right it's like even even an engineer who would just comply without questioning uh um is what is that space the problem and then this is why many enterprises will probably fail to kind of go into the cloud so i think one of the things that you know from my learnings and from the mistakes i've made we've made uh, is that if I was to be able to do it again, the one, the way first workshop uh, I would have kind of with InfoSec and, and governance is that actually let's agree in principle, um, that let's identify um, or let's ask the questions. You, you're saying perceived risks or risks, right? Let's ask these questions and then let's work together to identify and validate whether these risks exist, first of all. If they do, then leave it on our responsibility, on us, Seeing as security is everyone's job, right? I, I I don't believe DevOps is. I believe you know, DevSecOps is essentially what it is, right? And at, at that point, once you know we've worked together with security to understand uh, a identifying and validating the risks, then leave it on our responsibility to ensure that we've added we've added uh, adequate controls around those, you know. And and again, coming back to uh, it also touches upon the shared responsibility model that you mentioned about, right? Is that okay? Some of these perceived risks or some of these risks that generally were in scope on-prem, well, now it's the responsibility of the cloud provider, at which point the SLA, that legal binding SLA that you have in place is your control, 
Uh, and it's, it's important, very important to understand that, you know, it, this whole shared responsibility model and understanding actually, okay, from which point is the scope of your uh, um, kind of assessing those risks? And so coming back to your, your, your question about obviously risks and mitigation and that perceived risk, right? It's, there's two things, right? It's understanding, okay, first of all, is not to dictate the, the controls, right? Especially when it comes to the cloud. And, and, and I'll give you a good example. Um, when I was working on a kind of product development for um, GKE, I believe it was GKE or, or Dataproc cluster, and one of the kind of controls uh, uh, that InfoSec were uh, mandating and stipulating was, oh, you must uh, show proof of IP tables and whole space firewalling. Um, so, so I went back and said, hey, GCP firewall is, is, is essentially a distributed firewall. And the actual enforcement is done at the host level. So it's essentially as if when you're right, when you, and what it was, you know, enforcing in their head, they were thinking, oh, yeah, I want, you, I, uh, and they were, the stipulation they wanted was, in addition to GCP firewall, I also want you to go into a Linux box and apply firewall D or IP tables. This is what they were stipulating. And I would say, oh, actually, that's redundant. Given that the GCP firewall is actually a distributed firewall, and the actual enforcement happens at the whole space, so it's, it's in essence, you could think of it as yeah, on centralized. Even though I'm doing this centralized control, um, think of it as GCP firewalls. Then instruct going to these VMs and applying IP tables to. And I know, and I and I know that that's the same for AWS as well, right? And so, when you understand that, you realize okay, if it's host based, now that so that one thing leads to another, right? In principle, when you understand that, okay, even though it's centralized, uh, a centralized control and distributed enforcement, also that you also understand that actually the source and destination is no longer necessarily IP-based, and I can do it object-based, right? Then having IP addressing and IP planning, is that, is that, any, is that relevant any longer? And, that, that, and that's going to touch upon what you, the other point you mentioned about unnecessary layers of complexity. As far as I'm concerned, if it doesn't achieve an objective, then it is it is an unnecessary layer of complexity. And I would go as far as saying, like, if I can achieve um, application isolation in a single subnet by me creating multiple subnets, I've just created unnecessary layers of complexity. And I would also add to that from a security perspective, right, is that if I've managed to apply control at one level, by applying controls at multiple levels, which I've believe is redundant right is is instead of thinking of it's been a fortified security control rather i believe it's an added risk because these are all surface attack areas as far as i'm concerned the more you and if these are these layers of complexity not only are they operational hazard okay that's a that's from a an ops perspective or a development perspective we say oh yeah why am i adding all of these these are operational hazards but let's talk about from a sec perspective right from a security perspective is that i want to be secure now, each layer of complexity, as far as I'm concerned, if it's unnecessary, then that's the surface attack area I could do without. You know, they say there was this news that I read years back where they say much. Have you heard of much? It's a Linux uh, email client uh, called much. Uh, I have, yeah. And it, yeah, exactly. It's very simple, right? It's just UI. And there was a news there where they, uh, the InfoSec, uh, uh, it was written by security analysts to say that this is actually the most secure email client. And then they go on to explain why, because it doesn't have any JavaScript. It doesn't have any other layers of surface attack area. And therefore, it's actually more secure than your web email client. Take, based on that, let's take that principle and apply that to you know a cloud platform, where if I could do without a layer, that's the surface attack area that I've avoided. And, and this is, I think, coming back to, okay, how do we work with security? It's essentially really 
like you said, right, it's perspective. It's, uh, in essence, that viewpoint. And I, and I appreciate, and I understand cloud is still new to a lot of people. So in order to, it shouldn't be, you know, take my word for it or even take Google's word for it. Right? Rather, why don't we actually test it out? Let's take a scientific approach and validate these list of risks that you perceive. And even actually, before we even say list of perceived risks, right, the traditional way is actually, I've given you a list of controls. I haven't even dictated or I haven't even, you know, uh, articulated the risk here, right? I'm just giving you controls. And like, when you ask you, well, why do we need it? Oh, because we need to close the firewall port. Yeah, but why do you need to close the firewall port? Because, oh, because I, I need to stop an attacker from coming in. Okay, well, again, I've asked you a question. Why are you trying to, what's the risk, you know, for an attacker? Okay, so attacker's coming, so what's the risk? Is that the other day I was asking, uh, yesterday, last night, actually, uh, one of our colleagues on, on Slack was saying that, hey, uh, can someone give me a, a list of controls for HTTP Vault? Uh, the customers are asking how we control their data and, you know, what controls we have if a role, uh, for a rogue um, access to the data or HashiCorp. So I, I wrote in Slack and said, what's the risk? He goes, oh, the risk is they can access the, the sensitive data. I said, okay, when you mean sensitive data, are we talking about the secret or are we talking about sensitive as in PII or business data? He says, the secret. I said, well, okay. Well, okay. And I, I asked him again, so, so what's the risk? I said, what is the business impact if someone did access this in, in HTTP role? Someone somehow managed to find a secret, a credential. What is the business impact for that customer? You have to ask the question, right? At which point, you, this is what when you, and when you pursue that question, then you come to your answer as to okay whether it's uh, a if it's a necessary control, whether actually yes it is a risk we validated the risk, but what's the probability of that risk? Or yes, it's a risk in the sense that there is a risk of as the secret being accessed. Having said that, there's still zero impact because they don't have access to our network. Neither do they know what secret what that secret belongs to or what it can open up, right? So at which point, for any actor who could just get a you know base sixty four hexadecimal secret, if they don't know what it opens up to or where or who the customer is or you know which network, as far as they're concerned, it's just gobbledygook, right? So it comes back to that what you're saying about perceived risk, right? It's like before we even move on to controls, let's ask the question. What's the business risk, first of all? Then understand the technical risks, right? And then thereafter, looking at those controls. So actually, I just want to make a quick side note, uh, just um, based on uh, something that you said there. So, I mean, we've, we've been talking a lot about kind of day one and day two. And a part of that conversation has been how do we educate non-engineers about engineering solutions? How are we going to mitigate risks using engineering mindset, right? But I also think it flows the other way. And you, you said something which you never actually used the words, but you basically described the definition of um, of how you figure out an attack surface, right? So you mentioned that it's the 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 um, the probability of of a specific event happening, and should that event happen, what is the impact? And this is a kind of a calculation of those two things that tells us what the the attack surface is, right? And this is how you you go about doing threat modeling. Uh, and these types of exercises. So kind of my side point was, you know, we, we spend a lot of time in these phases trying to educate non-engineers about engineering. But I also think it flows the other way, right? A lot of these security architects and security analysts are very well versed in these techniques. And I think it's quite important as engineers that we learn from these individuals how to conduct uh, uh, threat modeling ourselves. How do we analyze some of these risks? And actually, I think it makes quite a powerful 
combination when you know engineers are able to think that way and then you have security analysts and architects that are able to think with an engineering mindset it gives us the best path forward but what i will say is that doesn't happen overnight that's definitely a journey um and i think it's going to be it's going to take an organization and a culture of people that are going to be brought into the idea of growth together um but that was a bit of a side note where I want to go from here is, you know, we've talked a lot about what day one talks about, and I don't really think we've actually nailed it. And I don't think we're going to get to nail that in this kind of one uh, episode here. And we probably have to come back and do further episodes. But I kind of want to speak a bit more about day two now, right? So, um, you know, what exactly do we mean by day two? What are the different challenges that you face at day two i think you used words like scale for example you know i have some some stories uh from my consulting days where i have customers who go through day one journeys and everything's all good until it scales to a certain point and then the, the whole thing is broken and by that i'm not talking about the technology i'm talking about the process right the workflow you've introduced bottlenecks that weren't there before so on and so forth so i just want to kind of get your perspective a little bit on day two what exactly is day two? What are the key uh, signs that maybe you've outgrown your day one implementation and you need to start thinking about how to cycle through uh, a, uh, how do I put it? I call it the target operating model. What I mean by that, it's almost like a process of continual improvement, identifying where things that used to work really well are maybe not working so well. And how do you go about um, sort of repairing and evolving these things here to, to make business operations uh, a lot easier and smoother for for the people within the organization 100 percent. i think you touched the key point there um that is uh that day two really uh, and you're right right day two and i think that comes up let me ask that you know, answer that first question that you asked was that how do you know the difference between how do you know when you're on day two right and i think you know when your day two is basically when you realize that you've got a scaling issue. When you realize you're at a bottleneck, right, essentially. And that's when you're on day two. Uh, and, and this is what essentially what it is, right? It's, and we've, and in my experience, we've had to, again, it wasn't by design, it was organic. And we've had to rethink our model in order to overcome those day, day two scaling issues. And, and what, what do we mean by that? It's like, okay, that like how do you, and, and, and I think, you know, I want you to kind of answer, drive home one thing. Is, is, coming back to that, you know, that side note that you mentioned, right, is that in essence, right, the mindset, like you said, and you're 100% correct, right, the, the, the developer mindset needs to adopt a lot of the kind of security piece, but the security mindset needs to adopt this product development mindset and that whole kind of product development approach and everything being product-based rather than the, uh, uh, kind of project-based. Being a product-based, which means essentially it, it's all about the developer experience. It, they're your customer. So security controls have their constraints, but constraints would define how you deliver a product for the customer, not just block giving a product to the customer. So having that in mind, that when you, if you don't recognize that, then you don't recognize that you're a bottleneck. And then you won't recognize that you're, you have scaling issues. Because there are, uh, believe me, I, I've been in August, right, where, uh, and I've spoken to a, 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 another tier one global uh, investment bank the other day, where when I showed them this kind of application onboarding workflow that we've done leveraging kind of both Terraform and cloud uh, with multiple integration points uh, across their kind of ecosystem. And, uh, um, you know, it was, it was very much self-service, delegated self-service uh, uh, applications where they were wanted to onboard onto GCP. And there was this workflow that I presented to them. Um, 
So when they asked me, how long does that take you to do? Uh, and I said 10 minutes. I said, no, no, I, I know it may take you 10 minutes from a, you know, a Terraform run, but how long did it take you to onboard from a process perspective, from the point of requesting to deployment? So I repeated, I repeated 10 minutes. They said, how? Right? It, it takes us six months. This is what they said. I kid you not. They said, it takes us six months for an application developer to make a request for a VM, not even onboarding onto a platform, for a VM um, to the point where it's actually been de deployed for them. Right, um, it takes up six months. So I said, "Look, there's two things," and I explained to him what there's two things. What I said is, "It's self-service and pre-approval." I said, "I've been, I've also been in that environment where it, it's been very much centralized uh, and essentially becoming a bottleneck." But I've also spoken to these very people in my last role, where, where, where you know, in that, in that investment bank, where we were part of, we were, we were actually a child company, part of a, the larger group. Uh, um, and when I asked people in the group, they they did not even realize that they were a bottleneck, or neither did they even see this as a problem. And the reason for that is because they didn't have that product development project, they didn't have that mindset of uh, enhancing developer experience. If anything, when they were looking at Terraform, they were looking at enhancing the engineering experience or, or their practitioner experience. But they were still putting, for example, ServiceNow uh, in front of it. So they were still thinking, they were thinking about automating the actual deployment, but the the bottleneck still remains, right? Which, which is, you know, that whole request space. Yeah, having a service catalog is one thing, but having a centralized request space, that can now moving away from, even if you moved away from service now to say Slack, it hasn't changed the principle. You're still making a service, you're still making a request space uh, service. Uh, and at which point uh, there is human intervention involved, there is humans involved. And now humans involving reviewing, the whole point of automation, if done well, is to trust the process. That you know, having humans means that you're not had trusted process, and it means that you remain the bottleneck. Now, coming back to, it's until you don't realize, you don't have a that pro, kind of product developer uh, experience mindset, you won't you realize you're a bottleneck. And but when you do realize a bottleneck, a it's a good sign because it means you, you you're already on that mindset. But b once you're on that bottleneck, it's then where the the next phase of culture change needs to happen the next phase of mindset change needs to happen which is actually how do we delegate because we can never scale as a centralized team you, know, you will always remain a bottleneck the moment you make this decentralized that, that process of onboarding it becomes decentralized and that was what i was explaining to the, 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 the tier one bank is that the, you know the moment you make this decentralized is, is is the only way you can scale and that's what we had to do in my last role that's what we had to do is and and how did we do that it wasn't just trusting the process though rather is we had to shift security right to the left. Well, I say right. Shift security to the left, right? And uh, again, I say right. <laughs> shift security to the left of the pipeline. And um, essentially, where security are no longer validating deployments, rather they're that validating deployment patterns. And those validated patterns will then become reusable for developers to use and allowing them to scale. At which point, you've only validated once, Having the technical assurance, knowing that developers cannot uh, implement anything outside of these patterns, uh, and how do you enforce that? You can leverage technology today. In today's world, you can leverage these technologies to enforce uh, only using validated patterns, right? Uh, at which point you've given the you have the technical assurance, knowing that oh, okay, you know what? I know, you know, we've. Uh, and I'm going to uh, the example here. For example, uh, Terraform Sentinel. If you have, if you're enforcing everyone to use Terraform Enterprise, 
and you have Terraform Sentinel. Let's just say, you know, in, in the cloud, you have the CIS benchmark. Now, imagine you wrote Sentinel policies all around CIS benchmark. Now, Sentinel policies is before the fact, right? And you have something like Chef Inspect or Prisma, which is after the fact, right? And so I see them as, as detective controls. Uh, uh, things like Google for Setting being corrective controls, but they try to obviously kind of fix it. But Sentinel policy being preventative controls. Now, if you have these preventative controls before the fact, and you know that the that those developers can deviate away from it, having that technical insurance, now you can try to say, hey, developers, guess what? You're okay to now go ahead and deploy uh, uh, your own VM anytime you wish, pre-approved into, into prod, because we know you can't break it even if you wanted to. But if you can get to that stage, that's, I mean, I, I, essentially day two is about achieving that, is that process. It's about achieving that workflow. But the only way you will achieve that, right, is when in principle we all have this consensus that we want to enhance the developer experience within the constraints uh, of, of compliance and regulation definitely i mean even if you're not using um sentinel uh, with terraform most cloud providers have some form of sentinel in fact i'm doing some some work um at the moment for some experiments with vault and i'm working in microsoft azure and they have Azure Sentinel, which essentially is their policy framework. So if you want to enforce just for argument's sake, I don't know, like maybe a, a tagging um, strategy, uh, maybe certain tags have to be present for certain resources to be provisioned or something like that. You you can set up all these types of policies, right? So, you know, the the tools are actually irrelevant, right? It's it's about the patterns and the workflow, right? So, you know, like, like Adil mentioned, he he was talking about HashiCorp's uh, Sentinel, which you can use with Terraform, and you can use it with Vault and most of our other tools out there. But if that is not a good fit for you, there are other things out there that you can use. Uh, like, so I've mentioned um, the Azure Sentinel. There is um, so many, you've got Opa is, is another one that people are using to enforce certain things. There's so many different tools out there. So I think the, the point I want to drive home from this is don't let your processes be dictated by the tools. You figure out what your workflows are. You figure out what your processes are. And a lot of this has to do with the human element, right? Which is why you can't let the technology dictate that, right? You figure out what works for you. And then that should dictate what technologies that you implement, right? Uh, and there are so many different constraints that you you have to kind of consider here. Um, and it will vary from one organization to the next. But I, I think that is such an important point here is, um, you know, you're talking about validating a pattern, right? You're talking about validating a workflow. So it's pre-approved. Like if you have a, a specific pipeline flow or something that has to go through certain things and that is pre-approved by security, well, guess what? As a developer, you can just go ahead and you can create your pipelines and you don't have to have a security person sign it off and you don't have to worry that half of the security department is on pay time off uh, for this week because they've worked really hard and they deserve it. You don't have to worry about that. You can just deploy your infrastructure. You can deploy your applications on top of that and you can go and enjoy your pay time off, right? And another point I want to drum home, which is something I say all the time and you kind of touched on it as well, is... Security, when you're talking about adoption of uh, of secure processes, of secure tooling and platforms, anything around that is all about providing a good developer experience, right? 
if you do not provide a good developer experience, you are destined to fail. It's just a fact that my many years of experience has taught me. And I can see you shaking your head right now because you're nodding, shall I say, because I know you've been through the same types of journeys, right? And it leads to, to another quote that anyone that's listened to my HashiCast episodes before has probably heard me say this, and I'll say it again and again and again. Security done well, it works for you, not against you, right? So we talked about um, complexity. We talked about the different layers and how sometimes introducing these uh, extra layers of complexity actually introduces extra layers of risk, right? It's another place where you can make a mistake and let something through. So these are just some of the, the points I want to drum home. Like we're coming towards the end of the episode. So I just wanted to kind of get these things out there. I'm just going to throw it back over to you, Adil, just to kind of get some final thoughts on this. And I think we're going to have to get you back for another episode because we're just getting warmed up. Like literally we are just getting warmed up. The conversation has not even started yet. Right? This this is such a key topic, which, you know, it's, it's born out of our one-to-ones that Adil and I have uh, on a monthly basis. But then I was also doing the... Um, the vault brown bag sessions and there was a particular episode where we talked a lot about compliance and governance and it's 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 one of those things that you know a deal was saying to me that look we, we got to talk about this more we have to have these conversations more publicly we people need to hear these things they need to challenge us to be fair uh, which is is always healthy and we need to be able to uh explain why things should be done in a certain way specific to that organization and if we can't explain that, then something is probably broken along the way. And we need to try and understand why our approach isn't working for some organizations. Um, and when I say our approach, it's not a one size fits all. It's a mindset, right? And that's what it is. So I'll throw it over to you. Yeah, 100%, Rob. And Rob, you know what it is, right? I've been here seven months, right? But when I, every time I've, I've been kind of, uh, speaking to many different enterprises and you know, sharing my experiences, right? What I come to realize is that, you know, the it's not the tools, as we say, right? It, it's, 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 there's three components. There's people, process, and technology, right? People having the right mindset will define the process and the process will define the technology, right? And, and I've seen this many times where, especially when it comes to cloud migrations, where we try to shift our existing tool sets into the cloud, and then we try to plumb our cloud process, you know, around revolving around tools. Rather, it should be opposite. And this is something in my last one. Again, we very quickly realized. I say very quickly, and it says that when we did move to day two and we wanted to scale, um, the more we started bringing uh, other tools into the Terraform provider ecosystem, we realized that even our vendor selection process should be very much influenced, etc. You know, for some of the questions we should be asking our vendors is that: Do you have a Terraform provider? You know, how mature is it? Is it verified? Because end of the day, it's about the workflow. Does it fit within the workflow? Tools, like you said, right, uh, you know, whether it's Sentinel, OPA, even, you know, like I said, Google Cloud Azure, they have their own governance uh, uh, um, model. These are, the governance piece doesn't matter if if you don't have the mindset of preventative controls. And again, we've just, we've just begun. And at this point, I think, like, like you said, right, what we're hitting home here is that prior to, looking at tools and technologies let's focus on the people and process because that will ultimately drive that business uh, acceleration and i think that's actually the perfect segue to end this because we started this uh with a, a comment i made which is that people are the most important part of the stack and we're ending it 
on that same note. So with that, I just want to thank you so much for joining me. Um, definitely, like I say, we're going to get have you back again. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, listeners. Uh, make sure you do you know, follow us on Twitter. And we also have a new uh, Instagram account as well, HashiCorp Live. So look that up as well. We're going to have a lot of this type of content that's going to be on there as well. But I would like to wish you a very good day. And thank you so much for listening. Take care and peace. You've been listening to HashiCast with your host, DevOps Rock. Today's guest has been Adil Ahmad. Be sure to tune in next time.